makes it, it does give me like just a moment of anxiety <laughs> for being for being surveyed. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> it's fine to be surveyed. It's all yeah. right. It's Whatever. Fine. Yeah. I mean, we're we're surveying ourselves right now as we start <laughs> to record this podcast for people. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I am Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Mona Awad joining us in the hyperspace Zoom universe. Mona, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh my God, it's a pleasure. Thank you both so much for having me. So... Mona Awad is the author of 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and winner of the Amazon.ca First Novel Award and Bunny, named a Best Book of 2019 by Time, Vogue, and the New York Public Library. Bunny is currently in development as a film, and Awad has published work in the New York Times Magazine, Time, Vice, Electric Literature, McSweeney's, and elsewhere. She began teaching fiction in fall 2020 in the MFA program at Syracuse University and currently lives in Boston. And you are also the writer of All's Well, which you're here to discuss with us and we can't wait. And hi. Hi. It's so nice <laughs> to see you. So nice to see you too. Yeah. I wish we could be doing this in person because I created a drink that would be so fun to be drinking with you too. Have you heard of this reading subscription service, Scribd? It's pretty amazing. For one low price, you get access to their entire library. It's actually how I listen to all of Lisa Lutz's Spellman books, one after another, to spend $9.99 for the month and just powered through all of those all in one go. It was awesome. Uh, it's the ultimate reading subscription service, Scribd. It lets you explore all of your interests in any format you choose. Ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. And it's only $9.99 a month. You get an entire library for less than the cost of a single book. There's no complicated credits. You don't have to buy anything additional. You can just go ahead and read to your heart's content. And if you're not sure what you want to read, Scribd combines the latest technology with the best human minds to recommend content that you'll love. And if you want to change things up, you're free to switch between titles, genres, and formats at any time on your phone, tablet, or computer. Right now, we're offering listeners of this program a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com slash books for your free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash books to get 60 days of Scribd for free. It's a party drink, um, and I know that All's Well isn't necessarily what you might call a party, no a party novel. <laughs> no, not not exactly. But... What, what a is little a party? bit in a like in a now Dorian want... Gray kind of way. I sure. Think, yeah, there there's definitely a lot of giddy mania. There's a bar. That <laughs> yes, there's definitely party. a bar. Yeah. And, and so one of the one of the things in the book is this golden drink. And originally I was going to try my hand at making a golden drink, but then I thought it's, it's this surreal liquor of the gods of the, of the <laughs> devil. It's, it's too much of a Faustian bargain for me to right. even try to. <laughs> so instead I thought um, I would make something 
one of my absolute favorite cocktails of all time, um, the painkiller. Ooh, that sounds good. And um, of course, I feel like Miranda would be well well acquainted with both the drink and the pill. Um, oh. yeah. <laughs> and so this one also has, I, I'm calling it the bloody painkiller because along with the normal players of rum and coconut cream, pineapple juice and fresh orange juice, there's also blood orange, orange juice and blood orange liqueur poured over it. Wow. And all of that is actually um, frozen and then blended and so this was made oh. like 40 minutes ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's I melted. I love the color. It's a little golden. It is. Yeah. It ended up golden somehow. I think yeah. that's the dark rum and the orange juices and the pineapple playing together. It's delicious. And, you know, I um, I wish we were drinking it together. But still, thank you for inspiring it because a bloody painkiller, I, I feel like a painkiller itself is always a very sweet drink and I just picture it on vacation, which I think Miranda desperately needs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but adding this, this bitter orange, bitter liqueur is really, um, it kind of deepens it a little bit. And yeah, so, it sounds fantastic. I'm definitely going to try to make it at home. So cheers. 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 And you've got an Aperol spritz. I love this spirit <laughs> of that. Yes, which is like. also bloody, like a little bit of a bloody sunset, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. bloody sunset. Yeah. Sounds like name. a band name. Yeah. Oh, are you are you drinking something, Drew? I am. Interestingly enough, I'm drinking a red IPA. So we've all got a little bit of uh, a blood thing going on. But for my <laughs> my new local brewery, Westkill Brewing makes a Fire Tower red IPA that's absolutely delicious. Oh, cool. That sounds great. I'm so glad we're starting this episode with a Zoom blood packed <laughs> i know and it, it's very fitting because you know red is definitely the color of macbeth and i think red is a, an important color and in, in also in come closer so yeah oh, i cannot wait to get there yeah but before we get all the way to that point we do try to talk about the what'd you buy get into the capitalism portion of the show Mona, do you want to start us off? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll tell you uh, a couple of things. Uh, I discovered, um, I've been really listening to to a lot of music lately because I haven't really been able to focus very much. Um, so I've been buying things on Bandcamp. Ooh, cool. Yeah, there's this great new wave uh, post-punk artist um, named, well, she calls herself Leathers, but it's um, Shannon Hemet from this new wave band called Actors. Um, and it's an EP. And if you're feeling nostalgic for like new wave 80s synth pop, you should definitely check it out. Um, and then uh, I love uh, this book. I'm going to hold it up, even though this is yeah, the new Brian Evanson um, coffee house sent me a copy of the glassy burning floor of hell, which is his new collection that's actually coming out the same day as all's well. And it's a fantastic collection. So I highly recommend that too. Awesome. Yeah. It sounds like a good trip to the bookstore and just get those two books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that week's book haul figured out <laughs> uh drew do you want to talk about something you bought 
Yeah, so it is, we're coming up on October, and both of these books uh, that we're going to talk about in this episode were books that were on my, like, at the beginning of the year, tentative October list. Um, and obviously, I've read them sooner, but I have been starting to stock up for October. And so, three things that have come in recently that I'm super excited about. Uh, one of them, my old friend Lori Hetler, who I used to write for her Next Best Book blog, she's been doing some publicity and sent me this book called The Beast in Aisle 34 by Ooh. Darren Doyle. It has a great title, but I have to show you both the cover because it's just, I, she's, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't need to know anything else about this book. I just uh, want it. But it's, awesome. it sounds like it's some like guy who works at a big box store who thinks he might be becoming a werewolf. And I was like, all right, that's great. <laughs> that um, I am increasingly obsessed with the work coming out of Michael Kelly's Undertow Publications up in Canada. He, there's a short story collection that just came out called To Drown in Dark Water by Steve Toes. Um, it's, I love having a short story collection in October cause I can just like dip in every once in a while. Uh, and then the last thing, something that's coming out in October, Reprieve by James Hahn Madison. Uh, I think it's William Morrow is putting it out and it's about like, a uh, the aftermath of a murder in a, in an escape room, like a full contact escape room. Ooh. Um, yeah, what it up? sounds like <laughs> weird and spooky. And something about it tells me it's going to like make some left turns where you think it's going to go down traditional paths. So I'm stoked. I'm wow. looking forward to being even more scared than I was by these books. Full um, contact escape room. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know by context what that means, but yeah. I didn't know that existed until just now. I mean, even in, even in fiction. Yeah. Some things are too much. Um, Christopher, what did you buy? Uh, so we got sent this novel that I absolutely love the cover. Um, it's Gus Marino's This Thing Between Us. And it's this sort of optical illusion with just a little black and white dog staring into like the red seam at the center of an archway. And it's about, apparently it's like a very quick um, synopsis on the back. A widower battles the dark force inhabiting his smart speaker. So, also on my October list. <laughs> um, existentially frightening, they say. And so I, I, um, I don't have any smart devices like that, you know, that I've, I haven't invited Alexa into my home, you know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm afraid of that. And I'm, I think this will just shore up that decision. Yeah. Um, and then I also, um, I also was sent the sequel in Lindsay Ellis's Numina series. Nice. Oh God, I love Lindsay Ellis so much. And it's called Truth of the Divine. Ooh, nice. It's a great cover. And yeah. um, the aliens are here now. It's book two in the series. So the aliens have arrived. The world is dealing with the fact that aliens exist. And there's a bunch of like questions of what rights do we give them? Do we give them human rights? Do we create something new? And there's a lot of trauma um, from what happened in the first book. It's looks it's doing that um, 
sci-fi series thing where every book the second book is like much longer than the first so <laughs> it's getting thicker as it goes on which i i love and so yeah truth of the divine um that comes out in october so people can pre-order that now if they want that yeah. both of these are october releases this is we're preparing you yeah. to receive books in in a good month <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah um a book that's out now yes however, is right now Mona, your new book, All's Well. And before we dive into it, would you tell our listeners what it's about? Sure. Um, So it uh, takes place in New England, um, and it's a campus novel um, set in a a theater program um, at a a New England college. And it's about a theater um, professor named Miranda Fitch, who is suffering from severe chronic pain that nobody believes she has. Um, and she is hell-bent on staging uh, this student production of Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well. But her students are mutinous, and they want Macbeth. Um, and Miranda has to reckon with that mutiny while being um, in severe pain. And then she meets these, uh, these three men at a bar who uh, kind of help her with that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then she begins to live a kind of Macbeth offstage. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun to hear you describe it to other people, knowing what all of that meant. <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited when this book got announced. I remember seeing just the blur that like you were writing a Shakespeare book and I was like, cool, I'm sold. Let's go. I think we had like a flurry of text messages back and forth. Yeah. Cause we were just like, this is, this is perfect. Oh, awesome. What, um, like where, why Shakespeare and why these particular plays? Yeah. Um, you know, I was, uh, it's, it's interesting because the, the question of Shakespeare and then the question of pain, which um, the book deals with a lot, are sort of intertwined for me personally. Um, I was struggling with chronic pain um, when I was a graduate student and I was, uh, I was in a Shakespeare class and I became so compelled, so obsessed by the plays. And I think part of the reason why is because Shakespeare just has these incredible reversals of fortune in his mm-hmm. play. And at the time, um, you know, given what I was going through, those reversals of fortune, um, those kinds of possibilities just seemed so exciting to me. Um, and I became very attached to all's well that ends well. Um, the heroine just seemed really disturbing to me, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so single-minded and pushy and and, and, and powerful, um, you know, in, in ways that, that other heroines in her position, she's like an orphan, you know, um, wouldn't really be in. And so, so yeah, I found her very compelling that she, she is this kind of orphan wench girl who like has this incredible desire for this man. And she turns the world of the play upside down in order to, to get what she wants. Um, and she's so polarizing, you know, she's kind of villainous and she's also heroic. And, and that got me thinking about Macbeth um, because that, for me, there's kind of this 
connection between the two, between Macbeth and Helen, both have this mm. desire, this really deep desire that can't be realized within the world of the play um, when it starts. And then they take this really wild transgressive action in order to make it so. And then one goes down the road of comedy and one goes down the road of tragedy, but it starts with that desire. The whole play is catalyzed by this kind of hidden desire. Um, and so I just thought, well, I'll, I'll do the comedy on stage, the comedy version of that on stage, and I'll make this character live the tragedy version of it off stage. Oh man, I, it's pretty rare at this point that I miss my old job at the public theater. But I wish A, that I still had it and B, that there wasn't a pandemic so that I could like bring you in to talk Shakespeare. That's such a cool way of thinking about those two plays that even as I started reading this, I was like, all right, this is a choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was curious, how much Shakespeare would you prefer your readers to have going into this book? And then how much also were you expecting them to have? And were those two different things? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, you don't have to have any really, uh, I don't think, to be able to read it. And I wrote it that way very intentionally um, because, you know, Shakespeare, just he draws from these very universal plots and, and, and draws from so many different sources, you know, from folklore, from history. Um, and they're so, the plays are so accessible, really. Um, so I, I wanted to make sure that the novel was very accessible. It's a very kind of universal story. It's careful what you wish for. It's, I, you know, this woman who is in pain just longs to be pain free. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, as even though I was engaging with these two plays, this tragedy and this comedy, um, I, I wanted to make sure that the reader could connect. But for those who do know All's Well or who know Macbeth, I do think, think that they will take an extra pleasure in some of the lines and the, the plot movements and the dynamics between certain characters, uh, for sure. There's all of that is, is in the book too. Wow, that's awesome. I was thinking about my college years, like doing Shakespeare in a college Shakespeare program and how well in this and your last novel, Bunny, you capture that like the artsy college life, but then also inject it with this like threat of uncertainty and is this fantastical? Is it just in somebody's head? Is it supernatural? What, what draws you back to that uncertainty and that, that line? I guess it's just the nature of my own experience of reality. You know? <laughs> I'm always uh, second guessing my experience of things and my perception of things, always, always. And that's really the, the beginnings of horror, the beginnings of fantasy is just that moment of second guessing. You know, did that really happen? Did, was my reaction to that? I don't, I don't even know, you know? And then you start kind of picking it apart and then suddenly it's, I don't know, you don't really have any, anything to hang on to. And I think that those environments, um, college campuses um, can kind of create that environment too, because they're very insular and they're kind of shut off from the rest of the world. So it's mm -hmm. actually quite easy to spin a story of your experience there um, and, and have it may maybe not necessarily correlate with reality. And then theater too, you know, I mean, I, it's not just an adaptation of Shakespeare. It's a, 
it's a, it's also a theater fiction, you know, it involves a stage production and all of this. And, and the reason why I wanted to do that is because I love the idea of how theater kind of opens up the borders of reality and, and, and it made so much possible in the novel. It allowed me to kind of ex use the fantastic to explore Miranda's predicament. It, it's so interesting, the exploring the fantastic because Bunny, of course, explores the fantastic as well, but they don't explore these things from the same vantage point. And something that you were talking about with us last time you were on the show, um, I'm going to quote you back to you, <laughs> was um, I love when magic happens in books. And I, I saw that in All's Well, but I also saw that there was at least a period where you were preserving the it was real all along like she just needed to believe in herself and the magic stuff is going to get like explained away and then the bottom drops out from that right and I, and I, i'm curious about writing that moment and, and creating that drop because it seems like a big risk yeah it definitely felt like one um and I knew it was going to happen um, when I wrote uh, chapter three, which is, you know, after after Miranda deals with the, the student mutiny, she goes to this bar and she's lamenting the situation of, you know, her students, they want Macbeth, she wants all's well, she's in pain, she's powerless, what's she gonna do? And then she meets these three men at the bar. And, and, and that's when I knew that the world of the stage hadn't stopped just because Miranda left the stage. The world of the stage was going to extend for the whole world of the novel. She was going to be living another play off stage. So there is no end to the stage. All the world's a stage, essentially. <laughs> um, and, and, and I guess that was the moment when I knew that that that, there, that drop that you're talking about, I, I knew that that drop was, was happening there and I just followed it, you know? Mm. Um, and it was exciting, but uh, it was exciting because I knew that, oh, I can take license now. You know, I'm not just in the realm of reality here. I'm still mm -hmm. in the realm of the theater and the stage where anything is possible. Right. I'm thinking a lot about the ways in which in a Shakespeare play, these things are only at like, even as you see the choices where Macbeth has the opportunity to sort of like sit back and let life happen, or he decides to do this thing. Yes. Helena decides that she is gonna, uh, any number of decisions that she makes in all's well. <laughs> but each time you're like, oh, well, obviously it had to go that way. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking about that, that question of like free will versus not, mm -hmm. which is a yeah. hard thing to talk about with an author, Yeah, but did, did you ever feel like these things could happen differently for Miranda? Or were, did you feel like you were on that very Shakespearean, like she's gonna get her comeuppance track? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. I wrestled with the question of free will all the time um, because uh, it's it's very ambiguous whether Macbeth has free will or not. You know, yeah. are the witches kind of determining um, his fate and his actions or is he, he taking action? Does he actually have agency? Um, and one of the things that's so exciting about the soliloquies in Macbeth, um, and I sat in on a, a theater workshop um, that was looking closely at Macbeth at, at Emerson um, here in Boston. Cool. 
And, uh, and they were talking about how um, the Macbeth soliloquies have two different strands of language in them. The, the witches use Saxon words when they talk to Macbeth. And so when Macbeth is tempted to kill, his language becomes very Saxon. But when he's tempted to go the other way and he's more indecisive, it's Latin. It's all Latin words. And that's really interesting. So the, so the agency is there. It's there in the soliloquies. He's being pulled. And then the Saxon is kind of a clue that he's being pulled in one direction, the dark direction. And then the Latin is kind of, he's being pulled into the more reasonable direction. So I wanted, to, I wanted Miranda to have agency, um, but I also wanted it to be clear that she was enchanted. She was inhabited to some degree by this, um, this kind of dark magic force that she starts engaging with at the bar with these three men who are of course the witches. Yeah, oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Something that grounds everything that's happening in the book is her pain. And yeah. and you write about it in a truly like visceral intimate way. And I've I've read other portraits of pain like Tender Points by Amy Berkowitz which is nonfiction and really looking at how people perceive when you talk about pain to others. Mm -hmm. And then also there's like A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, which also deals with pain in this sort of almost fabulous way. Like, and this doesn't feel like either of those directions. This feels like a, a different path. So I'm curious how, how you felt about creating it. Yeah, it was, I mean, in, in some ways, um, you know, it was, it was one of the most cathartic aspects of writing the book. Um, and that, was, that wasn't something where I drew, I, I could draw you know, um, inspiration from Shakespeare. Although I did to some degree, the language was sort of um, inspired by my own experience of struggling to articulate my experience of pain, um, you know, because it is something that sort of goes beyond language. It's really hard to communicate pain um, it's such a visceral thing. Um, and so I really played into that in, in the scenes where Miranda is seeking help, you know, from her physical therapist and she just draws upon these metaphors that sound so absurd, you know, it's like, what's the pain like? Well, it's red and it's throbbing and it feels like there's a chair on my foot. It's like, well, what do you, what do you do with that? Right? It's just, <laughs> but it's the best she can do. Um, and so, you know, I tried to also lean into the fact that she was heavily medicated too. So I wanted, um, you know, the sentences to sort of reflect that. It's, it's very visceral. It's very kind of like fragmented. It's the way that you feel, I think, when you're when you're grappling, or the way that I experienced grappling with chronic pain, severe chronic pain, and then trying to communicate it to other people. Wow. Yeah, I felt yeah. that. I felt that on the page. I'm, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad. It was part of the reason why I wrote the book. You know, um, was because I I wanted to explore uh, just what it's like to live with it. You know, what it's like to live in pain and how it might like shape so many different aspects of, of your daily life, like just, you know, getting up and driving to work and then being at work and interacting socially, you know, grocery shopping, um, sitting at a desk. I mean, all of these things are suddenly, they suddenly become challenging and, and almost feel impossible. Just these things right. that I'll take for granted, you know? So I really wanted to lean into just how much this thing that is invisible to the eye, to other people's eye, 
chronic pain can really um, be so debilitating. There's also the this moment later on in the book where she's sort of feeling better and magically sort of, um, but she's still having to talk to people who've been hearing about how she feels and she keeps having to temper how she's feeling because it's it's too magical or something. <laughs> I, I I felt the, that very, um, very deeply because I, I, I can see that wanting to bend reality, other people's reality to be like, I, I know what this might seem like. Right. Yeah. But, but I, I'm, I'm, I promise you, I'm not completely healed overnight. Don't worry or whatever. Yeah. It's like this weird self-protecting thing. Like I used to be so afraid to say when I was better because I always, it, it doesn't really work like that. Things are always changing. And then you suddenly get worse and then you're like, oh God, no, I somehow magical thinking sets in and you're like, because I said I was better, I'm now worse. It's like I'm being cursed. So there's this kind of self-protective thing that happens that, you know, um, where you just are always like, no, 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 I'm still in this state. I'm not well, trust me. <laughs> you know. Um, and then I think another part of it is just, I, I wanted to explore how we just can't bear other people's pain, but we also can't bear their joy. Like we can't bear their pain, but we can't bear their joy. It's, it's annoying to us, or it can be, you know? And so, so I, I don't know, there's a kind of like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't thing that Miranda, I think, experiences. When she's in pain, she's a burden. When she's joyful, she's kind of irritating to people. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's, um, I'm sorry, the, that's a sad way to put, it's, it's tragic, but it's also in the book, it ends up being sort of funny. It does, yeah. it does have, yeah. It's a, it is a big source of the book's humor. And yeah. it is funny. The book is often like very archly funny, um, which I always appreciate. I always wonder about humorless books. Um. Yeah, <laughs> me too. It feels like it's missing. For me, if it doesn't have comedy, it's, it's not showing the full truth of the thing. Like I, I feel like I haven't fully seen the moment in a scene, if there isn't at least a, a moment of, of lightness or, or humor. Mm. Um, you know, because th that always feels like it's part of the truth. Yeah, and it brings it brings you in. Yeah, there's something about you know that yeah. from like a stage perspective again that idea that making somebody laugh is the quickest way to the next second break their hearts. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's very true. It's very true. You, you brought us a book. Well, something else you said the last time that you were with us that stuck with me ever since. I wrote it. I was looking at my last notes and I wrote this down. Um, but that certain books are foreign territory and disorienting in a great way. And certain books are home. Mm -hmm. And you brought us a book that is one of the most disorienting <laughs> ex reading experiences. And also All's Well is... is also not home, although maybe it could be. Maybe books are only disorienting the first time you read them. Um, but Come Closer by Sarah Gran. Can you tell our listeners about it and why you brought it to us? Yeah. Um, so Come Closer is uh, about a young woman, an architect um, named Amanda, um, who becomes possessed by a demon. Um, she may, in fact, be possessed already when we first meet her. Um, 
and it is a very dark and incredibly compelling um, trajectory from there. And I won't I won't spoil it because um, I, I, I really want readers to come to it just moment to moment as I did because it really casts its own spell. But the reason why I I recommend it is because the voice just blew me away. Um, because you're just not entirely certain from the very first line whether she is speaking or whether the demon is already with her. Mm. Um, and it's phenomenal, you know? Yeah, yes. I, this book is like, I'm I'm working on a something a, about it right now because I'm trying to put these thoughts like to capture the way that this book, I have known about this book for a long time. Like ever since I read the first Claire DeWitt book, I was like, oh, this author is amazing. I want to read her earlier stuff. And both Come Closer and Saturn's Return to New York pretty quickly, I think, at least in the States, went out of print. Or like oh. they're they're very hard to find. And I've I've been looking to read Come Closer since then. And that was probably almost 10 years ago now. But I've never been able to find a copy. Or like every once in a while I'd see a copy at the Strand in New York, but it was like beat to hell. And I'd see, and I was just like, is this the right time for this? I don't know. Because no one ever spoiled it for me. I never knew anything about the book other than that I would hear people say, oh, it's so gripping. Ooh, it's kind of spooky. And so I went into it being like, okay, I'm finally going to do this. I'm not going to know anything about it. And it's one of the scariest things I have ever read. Mm. And it was so great to, <laughs> to get scared like that and not know it was coming. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's such, it's such a trip. I, I, I also had heard about it, but hadn't, um, hadn't read it. Um, and then this was one of the reason, part of the reason why I recommend it um, is because I read it while um, I was finishing All's Well. Um, and so, so I, you know, I, I decided I was just gonna, gonna pick it up um, because I, it was in the back of my head as just one of those things. And I wanted like a short book that I knew would scare me or that I'd heard could scare me. And it just, it blew my mind. It's so, it's elegant too. The voice is so mm-hmm. elegant. You, you know, it's so confident. It's so, yeah, it's like, it's, it really is like a magic trick. Um, mm. you know, that she, that she managed to do this. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I just, uh, I, I think about it all the time and I'm actually going to be teaching it this fall. So I did cool. teaching a horror class. So it's, it's definitely on my syllabus. What are you uh, going to be using it to teach? Uh, I think I'm going to use it to, to teach, um, point of view, um, the importance of point of view and horror. Um, because that, that's so much of what I think makes horror powerful or one of the, one of the tools that a writer can use to create a sense of horror is to create some sense of, of like a a sense of, of, uh, disorientation in the voice, um, or a sense that we can't quite trust the voice. And yet the voice is very sure of itself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so she she captures that so powerfully and come closer, I think. It's like a great example of that kind of voice. Yeah. Yeah. She wrote so convincingly about possession and yeah. just the 
blackouts and how those manifested on the page were just well on the page i listened to it so <laughs> but and and it's just like first it's it's barely it's the the audiobook is three hours and 40 minutes it's so short um i if you're i actually think it'd be a great like road trip listen if you've got like a yeah five hour road trip coming up um it's it's perfect for it and i it contains one of my absolute favorite horror tropes which is um i guess i have to go research what's happening to me oh yes yes <laughs> i love it it's so funny it's that there's a lot of humor in the book and that's one of the sources of humor is the is that that moment of looking up right yeah yeah i mean there's this quiz that features very heavily <laughs> in the book of um how to know if you're possessed and it's just like a yes or no and how however many yeses you have you know how possessed you are and i thought it was so mean <laughs> of her to make number one scratching like rhythmic scratching in your apartment um because that only that only happens when you're around but other people can hear it or something Right. Because that's so, who hasn't heard rhythmic scratching in their apartment? You know, it's just right. like, thanks a lot, Sarah Grand. You know, thanks a lot. Even that, I mean, the idea that you're never at zero. Yeah. Is a really unsettling thought. Because also it doesn't necessarily hit you right away. You're sort of like laughing at the quiz, thinking about like, oh, can you imagine the BuzzFeed version of this? Like, right. And it's only later that there is that sense of like, oh, wait a minute, I just heard something in my wall. Uh oh, right. no, right? No, it's true. It's true. Yeah, there's there's something about about the way that she structures it so that that quiz begins to kind of gather more and more um, gravity. You know, at first it's just funny. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's disturbing, but it's it's also funny. But it's it starts becoming less funny more disturbing as as the story moves on and she gets deeper and deeper in i also love that the that the husband edward hears the scratching too mm -hmm. yeah. we know from the very start that yeah this this isn't just it's not a question of is it in my head or not i don't i don't know that the book is as interested in that maybe it is i think you can probably do that reading if you wanted to but mm -hmm. to me what was exciting about it was the fact that this other person could hear it you know, it, there really was a demon, you know, like that's, that's kind of the, the, the sense that, that, that I had. And there was something very exciting to me about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I just started imagining um, reading Edward's novel, like oh, right. of the same period. And it'd be awful because the whole time you'd be just, you know, my, my, my wife put her cigarette out on me. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so awesome. So, but you'd also feel like, who is this guy that like thinks such horrible things about his wife? Um, you know, she always she's never thinking about it like that on herself. It it reminded me. I've recently read Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder, mm -hmm. where she, it's there's a similar start of something weird is going on with me. I don't know what it is, but my husband is realizing like I am acting differently. Right which is, um, you know, really it's, that. it's too, it, it, it brings it into this, it starts in this such a real space, like all the best horror always starts like in a deeply familiar um, right. setting. 
and I love the the way that she sort of rotates her set pieces um, around where it's like, oh, we're going to get another scene with um, Edward's married couple friends. Mm-hmm. Right. And every one of those, anytime they brought, came back in, I'm just like, they're, I'm going to be very surprised if they survive this novel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. She just, yeah, she really goes there. And that, that was exciting too. And that there's something very kind of Shakespearean about that. She's just, she's crossing one line after another and we're kind of watching and it feels complicit too, because we mm-hmm. we're sort of with her. I mean, that's what that, that, that's the thing I love about the point of view. Um, there is something about Amanda that, makes me root for her you know um like i i feel complicit in her deeds um when she commits them yeah yeah in and and i can see too you know applying this backwards about the sort of possession of the three men in her yeah in miranda in in all's well you'd feel complicit when you're like you're when you're angry at this kid who just wants a better part in the show that's like her <laughs> collegiate show and you're just you end up mad at her on on Miranda's level which is yeah. so um sort of delicious and and really one of the reasons I think you read fiction at all is to sort of be in this space that's like yeah morally ambiguous but you know real yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely that, that that's one of my favorite things about about Shakespeare is how he makes me feel that way about people who are very monstrous, you know? I start to feel what they feel. Um, and then they always cross a line, you know, where I can't, I can't necessarily follow them, but it creates a sense of real unease because I've followed them all the way up until this moment. Mm-hmm. And that's the most beautiful thing, you know? It's to have that kind of kinship with somebody who is kind of monstrous. Yeah. yeah, we often talk about like the empathy building exercise of put yourself in the mindset of a different, but so often when that's talked about, there's a positive connotation. It's like, oh, here, wealthy white person, put yourself in the place of somebody less fortunate than you. Right. But it's, it is also very helpful to be forced to walk up to that point and be like, ah, I can go no further. I know I can now confidently say that I won't murder somebody like (laughs) oh shit i'm right up on that line like that that, there's something really i don't know it's like a it's a good exercise kind of yeah oh yeah no definitely hopefully you don't go all the way i don't know yeah yeah (laughs) i mean sarah grand pushes that line and then just like walks straight over it sometimes (laughs) and she's just like (laughs) she does that very early on with um with a interaction with a bodega worker Mm -hmm. and it's just like if you're if you're along for that i mean it's so short that like it just i don't know i think it's sort of seductive in that way since i was listening to it and i was just going about my day as i normally would when i'm listening to an audiobook i was listening to it while i was wandering around target the (laughs) end of the book (laughs) and and I'm just looking at all these faces and it's just like, everyone's a demon. Yeah, no, I know, right? Uh-huh. Especially in Target. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so I am so glad you 
had us seek it down out because yeah. I um I've loved Claire DeWitt for so long, and for some reason I didn't read past that, even though I knew that she had other books. I just stuck in this series that I knew, and it makes me want to do that for anybody now. Like go back and see what yeah. else they've written. Well, now I want to read the Claire DeWitt books, which I haven't read. Oh, they're uh, great! They're amazing. <laughs> that oh god, that's so great. Yeah, I just I love this book so much. I think it's one of my favorite contemporary novels. Um, it's just it's so beautifully written. Yeah. Oh well, that was a great recommendation. So thank you for for yeah. sending us that that way. And now I really want to get into the recommendation portion of the show. Drew, do you want to start us off? Sure. I am adding a recommendation because I've already recommended this book on the show, but John Langan's The Fisherman mm. is another pretty short, uh, utterly gripping contemporary horror novel. But there's a scene relatively early on in Come Closer where Amanda is dreaming and and she ends up in a location that the whole time I was just thinking about there is an extended sequence on a very scary beach in The Fisherman. And I was thinking about like these two sort of like beaches in dreams are already kind of scary because inevitably the sky is like dark and you don't want to be on a beach when the sky is dark. Um, so that uh, The Fisherman is uh, probably my favorite contemporary horror novel, although Come Closer is right there behind it now. Um, mm. Awesome. But the other thing is The Hearing Trumpet by Leonora Carrington. Oh, mm. I've heard great things about that. Yeah, I had only ever experienced her in short form or visual form. And I picked this up during the New York Review of Books classic summer sale. And one day I was just like, you know what? This is, boom, perfect. Again, knew nothing about it. It's funny. It's weird. It's this like 95-year-old lady who is sent to an old folks home by her kids. She, right before she leaves, is gifted this incredibly strange hearing trumpet because she's kind of going deaf. And she ends up in this weird surrealist home where like each person is living, like somebody's living in a sarcophagus and in a lighthouse and in a giant toadstool. Hmm. And so immediately you're like, this is, something's not right here. And the way that she, the way that Carrington is just utterly disregardful of rules or the way that the way that we're supposed to build worlds or tell stories. It's like, it's the great surrealist novel. I don't know that I've ever read surrealism that has quite worked like this. Mm. Cause then it goes into like this crazy alternate Dan Brown style. We got to find the Holy grail. It's absolutely bonkers. And then goes completely off the rails at the very end in a delightful, just like, what the hell is going on way? Mm. Um, I really, I had so much fun with it. If anybody enjoys the surrealists or liked reading about a fake Leonora Carrington in Courtney Malm's Costa Allegra, uh, I highly recommend picking up The Hearing Trumpet. Oh, I'm definitely, definitely going to check it out because, yeah, I love her short fiction. Yeah. Um, Mona, how about you? 
Um, yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking about it, and I think, I think I'll I'll recommend um, a nice um, companion novel. I think for Come Closer. Um, so anybody who really loves Come Closer, um, I think should also read Looker by Laura Sims. Um, Laura Sims is. Uh, a wonderful poet and Looker is her first novel. It came out a couple of years ago and it's about this um, woman in New York who is very disturbingly obsessed with a famous actress who lives next door to her. Um, and, uh, and she, her life is falling apart and um, she begins to kind of cross, cross line after line after line and we watch her do this and it's, it's wonderful. For anybody who likes very voyeuristic fiction, which I do, um, <laughs> you, <laughs> you will love it. And it's got that same kind of elegance. Um, it's very short, it's very gripping. Um, and it's got that powerful first person voice that you just, you believe, but you don't trust. Um, and so that's fantastic. I highly recommend that. And then I'll recommend a movie that really took me by surprise that I, I hadn't seen, um, even though it's it's famous. And then I finally saw it and I was like, wow, there, there's a reason why this movie is, is so celebrated. Um, and that is A Place in the Sun um, with Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. It's such an incredible movie and so dark. Um, yeah. Just a classic, an American classic for sure. Great. Where did you see it? Is it available streaming somewhere? Yeah, um, you can you can rent it. You can rent it on um, on Amazon, uh, nice. which is how I did it. Um, and I just I loved it. And as a companion, um, there's a great podcast that that I really love called You Must Remember This. Um, mm -hmm. It's narrated by Karina Longworth, and she has a, a great episode about Montgomery Clift um, that I love. It's called Liz. Um, and it's all about their their friendship. Nice. That's great. I haven't thought about that movie in ages, and now I want to go watch it. It really took me by surprise. I didn't expect it to go so go so dark. And what I love about it the most, I think, is the fact that we don't we're not really privy to um, to the protagonist Montgomery Cliff's thoughts. We're not. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's going on in his mind. So when he takes kind of very disturbing action, it's a surprise. It's a real surprise to us um, as viewers. And that, that really kind of blew me away. Mm. It's very enchanting, very darkly enchanting. Yeah. I feel like I saw that right around the same time I first read The Stranger in high school. Like I think my dad and I were like watching TMC and that came on. And that same level of, of an early introduction to like masterful unease Yes, <laughs> that's a perfect way of describing it, yeah. All right, Christopher, take us home. I have, a, I have two recommendations. One is Tamara Shopson has a new novel coming out soon. It's called Laser Rider 2. And it's, she's written um, memoirs previously and they're in this very sort of idiosyncratic style where she really like starts a new page and uses blank space very judiciously and this novel is the same sort of thing um, it's set in a mac repair shop um, and you're just following sort of the misfits that work there sort of following one in particular named claire 
as she finds she really enjoys fixing printers. <laughs> and this sounds like it'd be boring, maybe, but it's just so beautifully designed to make you feel things while you read it. You're just completely with with her and in these, you know, you really feel the satisfaction of like fixing a machine and making it work again. And uh, so you have to follow her pretty deeply into the innards of a printer, but it's great. Um, <laughs> and there's also a, an extended portion where she talks about um, Ibo, the robot dog. And I love Ibo. I've thought about Ibo ever since they started being released. And I was just so glad that someone else in this world is similarly obsessed with like, the possibility <laughs> of Ibo. Um, and then the other thing I'm going to recommend, I don't watch a ton of reality television. Um, I have found that I like it more than I thought I would. And I recently watched all of um, The Circle. Oh, God, I love The Circle so much. Um and so if you don't know what it's about, it's about a bunch of people who move into an apartment complex, but they don't ever interact in person. They only interact what? through a closed social network that also controls their lives as a sort of like benevolent ruler. And this is a reality show? This isn't this no. isn't like a Philip K. Dick yeah. novel? It's it's reality. It's a reality show. And so they're just part of the joy of the show is just watching them slowly like lose their minds <laughs> as they don't interact with anybody. Season one is a little rough, um, but season two, the other thing that you can do, and I think why the show is particularly compelling is you don't have to use your own pictures. You don't have to be yourself. Um, you can be anybody you want to. And so when you get kicked off, as of course you do, because it's a reality television show, you get to reveal like, oh, I was myself the whole time, or oh, no, I was playing as completely not myself at all. And in the second season, there's a ghostwriter character who right. like turns out to have written like dozens and dozens of erotica novels, um, but fascinating television watching. Um, it also makes you feel a little gross, yeah. but in a nice way, in a, in a way that reality television, I think it's supposed to, I guess. I'm yeah. just looking this show up and I'm, I cannot believe that this is real. Yeah, there's a French one too. And I watched all of that. It's fantastic. Oh my God. I've, I've heard that there, I was reading an interview with um, one of the producers of the show and he was saying, it's funny, you know, the Americans, cause they've done this in Brazil, France and America. Um, they use the same apartment complex, though it's in, in the north of England, which it, I thought was weird. <laughs> it looked exactly the same, and I thought, it, did they build one in France? Did they build one in <laughs> And so, no, they just fly them all to the same, like, weird panopticon. Oh, my um, God. And, they, uh, and he was saying that the Americans all act like they're going to be best friends after the end of the show. Like, they're, they're all very much, like, creating a family. The Brazilians... Um, party the whole time like there's so much more drinking yeah and the, and the french play it very calculated like it's a very calculated game yeah. um i have and, a lot of questions do they do what is it like they're stuck inside their apartment did you is food yeah. then delivered like i'm just it, thinking about an apartment building and like you run into somebody in the hallway and it's like no, they, they i have a mask on or something they apparently 
give them the food that they need. Wow. Yeah, they're always cooking in there. They're yeah. <laughs> for themselves. It's really, it's such a bizarre. My favorite part of it is how they're clearly being prompted by producers to narrate their thought process when they have to rate each other and stuff like that. And I, I find that so hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The The producer's hand is very felt. And I yeah. think that's a one of the reasons I responded to it is it's just so weird. Like it doesn't, <laughs> it's not, because they aren't really interacting and they're, there's also um, a, an element of typing where they, they have to say what they, right. they want to type into these chat rooms. And so someone is live transcribing somewhere off screen, which is also something that I like to imagine <laughs> as a job because they, they use a lot of hashtags, which is stupid because it's, it's a closed social network. Um, and so hashtags are nothing. And uh, they also... Uh, have to narrate their emojis so they're like clapping hands emoji and send <laughs> such a perfect show for the pandemic and what was so strange is that it began airing just before the pandemic hit yeah it was oh. like it was like oh good like when when the pandemic hit those producers must have been the only ones who are like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> we can continue this. We can make yeah. this forever during this pandemic. So disturbing. But- so <laughs> disturbing. Very compelling television. Um, yeah. There's two seasons of, of American Circle that you can dive into if you want. And if you do do this, I'm very like, please t- um, tweet at us and tell us what you think, because I'm very curious. And I'm jealous of you, people who haven't seen it. I'm so glad you've seen it too. Uh, Well, I can also wholeheartedly recommend All's Well by Monica Wad. It was an incredible read. I'm so glad that you would come back and talk to us about it. um, Another book of yours because Bunny and All's Well are two of the most memorable reading experiences I've had in a long time. Yeah. And they're just, yeah, I, I just love your work so much. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. And it's such a pleasure um, to talk to you both. I'm really, really honored to come back on the show. And yeah, I wish we could be doing it in person. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Uh, And the folks at home, after you go and order your copy of All's Well from your favorite independent bookstore, um, you can also rate us on iTunes. We really appreciate when you do that. And we also really like it when you go and pledge us money over at our patreon.com slash smdb. And I think that's it. I think that's the thing. Yeah. Done. Woo!